Hello everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to Be with Mike G, the show of life, the show of sustainability, the show of agave, tequila, Don Amato, mezcal, but actually this show is about something far more simple. Today's guest, Jake Lustig, one of the aficionados of spirits and a spokesman and patron saint to agave, mezcal, and tequila is a pragmatist. Lots of these stories and lots of these journeys that Jake underwent start from a simple, pragmatic approach. Make things work and make a living. And I think we can all agree to see what Jake's empire, so to speak, has become and how he's had his hands in so many great conversations, so many great presentations, and the types of spirits that he's bringing into the States are really, really unparalleled. Wonderful chat with Jake. And as an added bonus, Enrique Fonseca joins us kind of from a distance, but yet chiming in and imbibing his spirit into the room. So I hope you guys enjoy this chat with Jake Lustig. The way that I think of uh, Ramon Villarreal, who was murdered in right. oh, 1995 that. for protesting the CRT law that allows for bottling of mixto tequilas mm-hmm. abroad and his ambition to make sure that all tequila was bottled in Mexico mm-hmm. and only through that uh, mechanism could one ensure the integrity of the product right. and he was shot at the gates of his distillery. Jesus. Um, so I'd say Mexicans Fighting for it fight as well. for uh, the soul of of the industry as well. Are they? I, is it as we? You bring this kind of deck. You bring this keynote to to the states to talk about it. It's a, sustainability is the one of the main themes, right? In tequila, or is sustainability it, yeah. in agave is one of the main things. But I think actually it's uh, modern capital against age old tradition. So right. really, what we're seeing is a polarization between efficiency models yeah. and historic quality driven uh models right. and the competition between those man it's always that kind of that that rate that razor's edge of money and in, in art right because once you Boy, get tempted that's the truth you get tempted when you there's lots of money in front of you, you're like well you know maybe i can forfeit just a few of my values just and, a few just a few but that's where it starts um now i'm, I'm not, not saying so, i'm not so sure that it's really uh mexican ownership making a conscientious or conscious decision to right. forfeit values i think it's the coercive forces of international capital and the is, it drinks too, is it too attractive is it just like it's maybe it's hard at the distillery sometimes and that capital looks really attractive i mean what why succumb to it uh what i've this is very of course everything that we say today is subjective but sure. i'm i'm more of the thinking that this is the incursion of international capital on native industry right 
Mexico, Mexico has known how to make incredible spirits for many, many generations. And you have an increasingly multinational conglomerate, uh, spirits-driven business, uh, right. capital-driven spirits business. And tequila started to really take off, I think, because it is authentic. It is original. It, it is delicious. real. Yeah. Historically, it's delicious. It's versatile. Mm -hmm. It's dynamic. Yeah. And international um, spirits trade has looked at what's the next greatest thing. It could be, it could be rum. It could be, you know, craft gins. Sure, it could any, be whatever. Yeah. And when they they're come just to, looking to invest, aren't they? Well, that's right. I yeah. think it's that. I think it's that. And then um, Mexico is a like many countries trying to emerge out of the third world into first world right. has looked at what are enterprises that can fuel development. Mm. We certainly can't fault Mexico for no, of course for not. realizing that tequila. What's well, more, it's, a, great it's an amazing currency, you know, exactly. There's the, the, the spirits made there that you will not taste that have that same character anywhere else. Right. You just can't. Absolutely. Rum is kind of the same way. It's very Absolutely. much expressive of the tomorrow. That's why it's so romantic. You know, we often romanticize about Yeah, that's right. That, you know. So we start to start, we, we feel that what we observe is that international capitalists have looked at this as being the, the next opportunity, nothing more. Right. You know, we sometimes smirk that it could be potato chips or it could be whatever commodity, you know, Bic lighters, but right, it happens sure. to be tequila. Mexican tequila. And so you get involved in the tequila industry, then you start looking at where are the vulnerabilities in meeting financial projections, which international boards of directors have oh, to, yeah. have it's a, to that's, accomplish the, first. When you're foremost. managing abroad, right? It's like, well, what's what are the numbers? You're right. not there. You're not smelling it. You're not getting your hands dirty. Right. That, that is for any business for any industry is is a big risk it's it's one of the things that denatures the natural creativity and the artistic nature of a lot of industries you know it's the tendency towards homogenization right, and then right. efficiency and then risk management quote unquote and before you know it you've kind of cut off the fringes and you've gone to the heart and before you know it you've alienated any type of dynamic, right. extraordinary practices, and you've, you're all kind you've of neutered it. You've neutered it. Very you're well fucking said. neutered it. Yeah, right. You, Boy, that's really it. Yeah, it I think is. That's you, to the heart of the matter. Yeah, you just you take the soul out of it. I think that's exactly to the heart. And of that's the matter that's here. you know what's interesting is if you if you look at tech, the companies that are successful in tech are successful because they promulgate a culture, an organic culture, and they let it be what it's going to be, and they don't try to condense it compress it or neuter it they but that but that's the problem with booze right is that people look at it as a commodity it's like in it one in one out it's 10 bucks cost it's tw you know i sell you two i make 20 bucks it's so much more than that you can't you can't reduce a van gogh painting to its value on the market think about what the motherfucker went through just to paint that you know what i mean and so in a sense us being kind of removed and uh, removed from our food removed from our spirits we don't understand that it's someone's lifeblood. I mean, almost literally. Wait, you know, I've never drawn a parallel to the tech industry. I've never contemplated that. But as I'm thinking what you've said, yeah, I think it's very much like that. You know, what happens in tech is somebody sees an opportunity, 
I mean, this is a layman's version of what's yeah. going on in tech, but you see an opportunity to develop a program or an app mm -hmm. to solve that. And if you can gain enough critical mass, you start, as you said, promulgating that app or that way of approaching the subject, yeah. that solution. And then before you know it, you've started to exclude others that might be divergent uh, perspectives. Sure. It's, it's hard. Success comes with some downfalls. It always does. Yeah, that's and, right. You know. That's right. But uh, at least success in the tech industry, as much as we want to celebrate it, we, we talk about kind of vanguard breakaway visionaries that have right. reformulated you know the future the regurgitation just a bunch of bollocks really yeah and what we have in the international spirits game is a consolidation as all people know of right. of distribution routes to market mm -hmm. um homogenization homogenization is the key and risk management as a as you know a uh, make something as inoffensive as possible with the least amount of waste and the least amount of risk that it's not going to work and right? risk yeah risk. so whiteboard it out man that's go it through, go through that's all that's it how and do you that, so, so and that's what we see massively in tequila now when you talk about mezcal that's not there to yet. me eons no one cares away. enough yet there's not enough money in it yet once there's enough money the, the shark will smell the blood in the water, and thus you get the attention. I think that's right, you know? and it's happening. I mean, it's going to happen. But let let let's let's focus on the positive for a second, then. So mm -hmm. you, please, you yeah. and Enrique are are here. You were in San Antonio yesterday. You were in Austin today, kind of facilitating these seminars. What's what's the message? What can I sleep on? What can I hope for that things are going to change? Well, it's going to be better. Enrique and I, when we talk about Enrique Fonseca who's here in the studio with us, yeah. we're talking about really um, a nexus of four generations of integrity and agave cultivation, mm -hmm. um, 40 years now in integrity and production, kind of an uncompromising view on how to do things right and what right. that means subjectively, but actually peculiarly somewhat objectively too, because yeah. the other side is so unabashedly rewriting the laws that dictate tequila production to, to suit their, to objectives. their own financial objectives right? absolutely yeah. i mean one of the most glaring things that we've been able to talk about over the last couple of days is 10 years ago um the tequila regulatory councils scratching out of the norma oficial mexicana that governs tequila production mm -hmm. the statement that tequila must be made from mat with mature agave they implausibly remove that language Would from it, the official norma Jesus. to make room for people who want to use uh, hydrolysis sugar extraction of immature agave of, of any any age of agave three-year-old three-year-old agave with 17 15 percent sugars all yeah. of a sudden being qualified Just using as, is it it's a uh, i know that this this process is like sulfuric acid there's a particular it, Enriched water vapor at yeah. 186 degrees in hundreds of micro nozzles that convert starches to sugars. Just and instantaneously, then right? You extract the sugar essence, essence from the agave without any of the vegetal or herbaceous notes of the plant. That's so the heart you, of it. Exactly. Oh, so it's, it's just straight to um, efficiency models of production, sure. and it really sidelines any sort of craft any sort of tradition, right. any sort of heart or soul. Disenfranchises uh, 
it absolutely marginalizes marginalizes and and, yeah, and yeah. really you know then the conundrum expands because all of a sudden you've got some of the largest brands in the market realizing we can't go that route we need uh, authentic mature agave yeah. at really quantifiable sugar levels sure. to make and a it can't be product. easy right like if everybody is there fishing in the same pond where's the agave come from right well one, like- one could say the agave would come through intelligent management uh-huh. and responsible practices and long but that's long and strict though, right? guidelines but but for the for the near term i'm a guy i've as is most of the case I've, i'm a retired dude i'm a white dude i want to start a tequila label like how how do I get the prime agave? Like is that even a thing, or do I just say, well, I'm going to get what's available, and then I'll just take That's it? Right. That's right. So you know, we we address these concerns daily, and we think that through transparency, education, mm-hmm. um, the types of activities that Enrique Fonseca has done over the last couple of days here in Texas, yeah. of first just bringing awareness to the problem, and not everybody's capable of doing that. But when you're one of the leading growers of agave, when yeah. you're one of the founding members of the Tequila Regulatory Council, you have a perspective that counts and that's based in fact and historical realities. And experience. And experience. And respect. Integrity, and experience. right? But not to be such a downer. I mean, what we see Yeah, is, so give me, give me the... So we're, we're, let's end on a high note. Yeah, yeah. Say, so yeah. what we see is differentiation. We see increased, especially with this um, craft, a cocktail culture, uh-huh. the farm-to-table culinary movement, increased social responsibility regarding non-GMO crops mm-hmm. and conscientious use of fertilizers and all of this type of stuff. What we're seeing is a differentiation in, in producers and the age-old battle between uh, authenticity and loud messaging. Yeah, And um, one of the things we really applaud in Texas and it's been amazing to see the the community in San Antonio and Austin, yeah. Houston, of um, a real, you know, we say the local is beautiful. You know, the small is beautiful. Mm-hmm. A kind of a grassroots awareness. And it's just astonishing to see how effective that is in the face of global capital. And sure. with the benefits of social networking, it's descent. It, it, would would you not agree that the the organic culture and the way that we're able to so think? Let's think about you and I, right? How do we keep in touch? Yeah, just that's to, right. Social, just until like last week, media. I got social yeah, media, right? Fantastic. And do you ever feel out of touch? I feel like you know what's going on it's with a great me. Tool. I feel like I know what's going on with you. It's a great tool, and it decentralizes big business. Amen, brother. It does, right? It totally Amen. does. Because well, oh, you're gonna you're gonna prevent me from talking to Jay. Amen. I think we all saw it recently. Bobby Hugel in Houston at Pastry War um, became aware of chronic kidney disease happening yes. with Nicaraguan uh, cane harvesters. Sure, only the ones that are in the village, and not the ones that left. And if there was a higher percentage of the guys that left that didn't have kidney disease, and you have a, a skewed statistical. But sample. it brought awareness, and sure, it brought an right. answer from a family that is. It did. It like within forty-eight hours, the wealthiest right? family in Central America. Yeah, it was, was amazing. Was was brought to a response within, as you say, forty-eight yeah. hours. Yeah, amazing, and that's. That's to end on that high note, right? That's the opportunity we have is that Absolutely. you you can't 
reduce and you can't stand in the way of the traction of social media good or bad right like absolutely you got a dick pic absolutely. out there sorry man it's gonna right, haunt you for right, fucking right. 10 yeah, years we all, we all get fatigued with the cute yeah. puppy uh, videos but, right but when it counts it resonates that's and right it gains a lot of traction that that's way. right you know? i think in business practices and also absolutely politically and yeah. it's um, there's a global community that's one thing we've really come to realize in the spirits industry we see um a, a real concern for sustainable uh, practices in right. tequila in you know perth and sydney australia in london in shanghai Everywhere. in singapore and then of course you know new york san francisco austin texas yeah so that's the world exciting. becomes a lot smaller it becomes a lot smaller we feel much probably falsely but much more empowered and <laughs> much <excited>. more important <laughs> right man you right. know 50 people liked right. my picture of that's right <laughs> tequila that's right but, but that's it's no the, longer 50 it's you know 200 and, sure and they're influencers and yeah um do you think amen. that that we're going to that that will change the way that the industry works because i i have my little hunch that social media and having those tight relationships and being everything but a massive distributor or a massive distillery or a massive company in general, that's where the true future is. It's not well, being, we'll you know what I mean? Like we'll I, that small to medium. That's we'll my, see. that's my whole thing. Small SMB. It bitches. becomes existential because, uh, <laughs> you know, people's, people's uh, innate desire for membership and sure. community can also be evilly co-opted. Yeah. <laughs> And you know you can belong. You can. And then you got people mind, pouring bottles the, down the sink. Well, blindly. Or, or also you can think you're part of you know the the kind of the renegade you know anti PC culture by sure. celebrating Apple, and then you realize Apple's the largest computer company in the world. Right, and right. Are their employment practices in you know backcountry China legitimate? So that's a good point. Yeah, no. Sometimes we can fall victim to our own our own uh, what a soapbox. <laughs> yeah, right. Our own pursuit of what, you know, our ideals can sometimes cloud our judgment. Sure. Um, it does but anyway, we're all fighting the good fight. We are. And that's been, that's the fun part. And that's how we met because that's right. Brothers in arms. Yeah, that's right. And stillers. that's really the sentiment. It's an international sentiment. And yeah. you can you always find this, a friend, right? Like No matter where you are. It's so exciting to see this kind of nexus of social consciousness, political awareness, mm -hmm. and um, consumer goods. At the end of the day, tequila and mezcal are consumer goods. Yeah. And like I say, mezcal is really nascent in dealing with um, social and economic uh, inequalities. We don't see yet real social responsibility in the mezcal industry we don't see ecological responsibility tequila has had to address already absolutely water the audience is wider post distillate yeah, water treatment you're no longer allowed to distill and then you know have your your water runoff just go into the community creek right because the ph is way off and you create a, a desert wasteland behind your distillery Jeez. tequila has been made accountable for that and practices have changed. We don't see that even yet in mezcal. Um, we're all aware that mezcal has got its intriguing flavor by burning firewood. Right, An average right, right. of about three and a half pounds of firewood per liter. Is that but, right? Jeez. Yeah, it's amazing. But astonishingly absent from any discourse on mezcal is reforestation. Yeah. Um, so Just the, got, fuel, the pure fuel to, to keep. It, it seems so yeah, obvious. Sure it does.
but what you what you mentioned in the beginning about sympathetic as you put it white guys yeah and getting involved in maybe private labels and stuff like that um that's gone rampant in tequila but it's actually run its i think some days it's cycle yeah and it's coming back now to either mexican owned or international capital less of the idealistic dreamy Dreamers. yeah uh <laughs> you know american gringo who's yeah. deciding to get into <laughs> yeah. the tequila business i think i'm the only gringo in the room actually but that's <laughs> pushing no there's two of us here okay good 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 <laughs> you see you speak so you you speak such nice spanish i i feel like i'm a, a man at all oh, that again that's to a gringo's ear <laughs> uh a mexican will point out where i where i fall short where you faltered but um yeah it's a it's it's wild it's changing it's energized because it's big capital mm-hmm. there's um where there's monies there's problems right and opportunity that's right. i mean and i don't only mean opportunity to make money but opportunity for economic sustainability sure. by the people who are actually harvesting right growing agave yeah but again, I mean, not to be a downer, one of the points that Enrique Fonseca has made over the last few days is in the recent decade and a half, we've seen an attrition from 15,000 agave cultivators down to 2,000. Really? So how many families have been pushed to the margins um, in just agave growing practices? Wow. Um, That's an amazing degree. It's an astonishing fact, yeah. right? We've seen in the last 10 years a uh, 2% drop in average sugar levels oh geez um because there's been increased efficiencies on how to extract sugars from lesser mature agave and a 10 percent drop so what is that'll trend down and continue to trend down right and what does that mean to families that used to wait for a legitimate crop and get a legitimate uh, price for that agave so it's a big problem it's a tug and pull it's a it's an enduring effort of the conscientious bartender and also now consumer yeah. uh, community to vote with their dollar and make sure that they're supporting the right people. So it's it's both exciting and terrifying. Sure, but that's what that's what life is, right? And particularly, anxious. I think in our generation, yeah, when we see both the challenges ahead of us, but also, like you say, you know, the the increased communitarian approach to right. addressing these problems these conundrums and figuring out more community in a, in a community sentiment a responsible answer to them so that's empowering and exciting it it's a good it's a good era so something that you know i, I don't so we like i said we met kind of talked talked about spirits in a completely different way but yeah. are you a california guy is that where you grew up i am yeah, yeah. where yeah. are you from where'd you grow uh, up Born in San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah. My mom grew up in San Francisco, man. Oh, great. Yeah. What yeah. neighborhood? She was in Hate, I think. Oh, yeah. far out. Yeah. Totally Fantastic. far out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, far out. During man. that whole thing. <laughs> the one thing that she tells me, and I still try to seek some validity, but she's like, yeah, I saw the first Grateful Dead show. I'm All like, right. I believe that. Wow. I believe that. Although she... she Rest in peace, Jerry. I know, man. Um, no, you know, I'm a Bay Area kid. I, I was raised in Berkeley and Oakland. Yeah. Uh, my mom remarried and moved to southern Mexico. Did she really? Yeah. How old were you when she remarried? Oh, God, I don't even know. Just young, like... She my mother or? was in the, the food and restaurant business, um, bar business. Mm-hmm. And as as any listeners can attest who were raised with a parent in the uh, 
hospitality industry you don't see them often mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my father actually rest in peace was the one who who reared me but my mom's um life path exposed me a lot to mexico growing up yeah i was back and did forth. she come back a lot like after she she did she was back and forth my entire life and so i spent a lot of time with her um, my dad primarily raised me but all of those summers all of those um you know winter breaks and spring yeah. breaks and weekends and there was a time that i i thought a, a lanyard was was physically attached to my neck for the unaccompanied minor <laughs> on the airplane <laughs> i knew actually the pilots at mexicana de avia like, oh, hey, it's a little jakey back there yeah yeah <laughs> so it was like a little community in the front of the airplane um, where in mexico was she oaxaca saying? oaxaca no shit. yeah many years before anybody cared much before about it was mezcal cool, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah long before it was cool <laughs> was this the 70s 80s 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 yeah, yeah 80s yeah and so yeah. she's doing the restaurant thing what'd your father do he was a professor no shit yeah at berkeley he was a I'm professor just, at berkeley and and then at other uc campuses and no then shit. at some other universities what so. uh, what what program we always joked I was the uh, the son of a migrant professor, like a migrant <laughs> farm worker. He was a political rebel rouser. His, no kidding. Yeah, his subject of choice was uh, the lighthearted subject of 19th century German political philosophy. Yeah, that's real lighthearted. So yeah, Nietzsche, Kant, <laughs> Hegel, you know those those fun lighthearted Kafka. conversations. Right. Well, no, Kafka is Kafka later, even though he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't. Yeah, Kafka but... wasn't part of the uh, the family discourse. <laughs> So much but uh he was Nietzsche, a little bit too light a little bit too light yeah a little bit too light right yeah right dreamy kafka bartleby the scrivener but uh no absolutely it was a, a heavy tone and that's pretty my dad was a serious guy yeah. did he do you ever feel like he at least let loose now and again oh yeah yeah oh yeah he had a fantastic humor boy do i miss it he had good, a fantastic humor sense of humor yeah um I don't know how to say this. Kind of, uh, he used to tell me, "Don't worry, lad. It it gets darkest before it com goes completely black." That's you know. I mean, so he <laughs> he he was. Uh, That's he had a great humor. Yeah, but I would say kind of a fatalist. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, but. where was he? Where was he from? You said lad, so I'm just thinking maybe. Uh, no, he was a border child. He was okay, from Chula Vista, California. Yeah. Um, right there on the border where you can look over the fence and, and see south into Mexico. Interesting. Um, but his spirit was always with the people. Yeah. When I was a young kid, he'd go and try to help the Cubans reach their sugar uh, tonnage harvest. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there were these brigadas, as they call them, to go contribute to the sugarcane harvest and yeah, they, would, yeah. they would rally uh, American students and intellectuals to go cut cane and contribute what they could. So yeah, I'm, I was very grateful to, I am very grateful to have been raised in a household that was aware of social causes and sure. political plights and with particular emphasis on latin america yeah just because that's our hemisphere any uh, brothers or sisters uh not from both my parents yeah. no so half a half uh step children step, step, got it. step okay. siblings um but it was oftentimes he and i yeah uh traveling around and we were we were an anomaly to say the least we had an old chevy pickup and mm -hmm. i took a lot of pride in how i could tie a good knot when we'd move our entire belongings from yeah. one town to another. 
He used to say, you know how to tell a rich oaky from a poor oaky is the rich oaky's got two mattresses on top. <laughs> there was a time in my life I actually believed that. You know? So now uh, everybody's throwing away mattresses all the time now. Yeah, well, boy, we, could, bugs, we could go all night on yeah. that, how the eras have changed. <laughs> yes, but, absolutely. No, I was raised pragmatically, and I think in looking back, I was raised with an interesting mix of social awareness, but also kind of a foot in the university and uh, real respect for both working class culture and celebrating the the struggles of the working class yeah. while also not taking for granted that we were comfortably middle class right. and um, wow. could Did afford you a better life. Having your father being in ac- higher education, yeah. did you feel like you were destined to follow in those footsteps and do teaching or? Yeah. To some degree, but I also developed a healthy skepticism for institutions. Sure. And Which you do. You kind of re- you both embrace and reject your parents, right? That's how it is. Uh, well, no, I think, I mean, yes, that's, that's inevitably true. But also I realize, I, I always felt that uh, as all people probably do, we revere our parents. And sure. I felt that if my father, who was so well received by his community mm-hmm. and so well published and so applauded by his students was forever chasing work from one university to the other mm-hmm. that institutions couldn't be trusted because sh- someone should have locked it down for him that's if right. he's that great that's they what i felt come. yeah yeah so that's i was good, and also point, i'm a kid though. of the 70s so yeah. we were raised without a lot of supervision sure and kind of make our own way for one reason or another, I left home early. I left home at 16 and began making my way in the world. And um, Does that, Is that what you wanted, though, at 16? Was that yeah, like- yeah, we had a very independent spirit. Yeah, And that's also part of the culture, I think, of the Bay Area, mm-hmm. California, historically, entrepreneurism, yeah. ability to remake oneself. Kind of, to uh, prove you can. To prove you can, yeah, right. To, to prove that you're not part of anybody else's marching band. I think to our detriment, long term. Maybe so. What we what we may lack is some teamwork. What did you would you get into? Uh, that that's a great you know to touch on that real quick. That's great. The the teamwork that it is community, but sometimes you just don't feel like it. You feel like it's me versus the world, right? It's like, yeah, I gotta prove myself. Right. I've gotta have my own persona. I've gotta do it all on my own. Which which it's not like that. It's not really ever. It doesn't like need that. to be. It doesn't have to be. And it and you aren't respected any less to. To, to have to rely on people you care about to help you. Absolutely. Every, you ne- it's, right. You're not. Just no, you're I, think, I think such an individualistic tendency is a detriment sure. not to be so applauded. But. but that's, I mean, that's that's how it is when we're younger. 16, I can't. Mm. I can't imagine. I wouldn't even, a fraction of what my parents were able to offer in terms of ex- ethics, the way that they raised me to be responsible, I couldn't even acknowledge that then. There's no way, right? It's like me. No, I know. I'm 16, fucking right, I know, right? But you don't know anything when you're 16. That's true, that's true. But I've also noticed, or not but, but in addition, I've noticed over the years that there is a cultural peculiarity of people who are raised between countries. That's, when you've yeah, got and a, I can't, I can't attest. When to you've that. got one foot in Mexico and one foot in the United States, um, you cannot be contained. <laughs> if a normal teenager, it's thinks, a scientific theorem. Yeah, I think, that's Jake. right. I think so. 
Uh, cannot be uh, created if, nor destroyed. Yeah, if you add already to the hubris of your average teenager oh, Jesus. that I'm now binational, bilingual, and you know, un- there's no limits. I'm <laughs> unbound here. It's like PCP being on PCP the whole time. Delusions of grandeur are just uh, boy, reality, that's, right? That's right. That's <laughs> right. But if you live in delusions of grandeur long enough, you start to believe that they're reality and. <laughs> you continue to believe that's reality long enough maybe you can just create that reality around you that's right maybe maybe that's a possible maybe that's a possibility i i'd I'd love to think that it is that you could color hubris and that that would be the reality but so what were you doing then when you you move out you're 16 what what industry were you still going to school did you drop out i know i never actually dropped out i found an alternative high school um in way northern california in a, We're about in, in a in teeny California. little town of 50 families called Petrolia, California. Interesting, okay. That had grown, grown tired of uh, sending its children two hours away to the nearest public school. So it cobbled together a little one-room schoolhouse. Really? So I went from a Berkeley High School with 3,700 students to a schoolhouse of 15. Jesus. And um, Where were you staying? We made a deal with the, the landowner on which that school sat mm. to uh, build a cabin for him in exchange for a place to live. And when I say we, that was with a lifelong uh, dear, dear friend of mine from who I grew up with, uh-huh. still very close with, Alejandro Morales, which uh, actually tied in with my whole Mexican experience because he's a Mexican-American raised in Berkeley. And when I left, his family initially took me in. No kidding. So he was a... Kind of a guiding force, as sure. scary as that is to say about him. If anyone out there knows him, <laughs> don't give him any uh, credit, Jake. Yeah. I swear to God, <laughs> you give him. Any- <laughs> so we went up to this school. We kind of remade ourselves. He and I. Um, it was an incredible experience. That's that's actually what enabled me to graduate high school, and then yeah. I went to UC Santa Cruz. Oh no, kidding! Which had a great program. What were you studying? Latin American studies with an emphasis on politics and history. Sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. So that, <laughs> German? That fit uh, right German? in. Yeah, a little light, little lighter than uh, 19th century German political philosophy, but <laughs> but not much. Just a touch. Just well, a touch yeah, a little more novelty in Mexicans, Mexico's history. But yeah. I was fascinated with the you know the adventurer tales of Bernal Diaz, who wrote down every every observation while accompanying Hernan Cortez from Veracruz up to the uh, the Aztec Empire to establish the the Spanish state in Mexico. Wow. So um, all of Rich. that kind of matriculated into a fascination with Mexican history, mm. and that dovetailed with this other part of my early life. Um, would you, intrigued with Mexican culture? Would you say that? Doesn't sound like you were conflicted about it because you, you no, in a sense, conflicted. right? It's like two kinds of two tempos of life, you know. To be conflicted would have taken more maturity and intelligence. <laughs> you <did laughs> you just subverted young, it, right? Dumb just... and full of something. How does that <laughs> saying go? So uh, yeah. So you no, re- but it was you... fun, and I began in Oaxaca to really um, be intrigued by. A historical perspective, right. you know, I don't know how to say this, but kind of a cultural legitimacy. The things in Northern California and my upbringing right. seem so um, cobbled together yeah. and uncontemplated. 
and with so many dire consequences to, to family and people. And were you uh, self-destructive? I actually wasn't. That's, Luckily, that's I, good. That's yeah, good. That, that <laughs> I, I imagine the Tasmanian devil. You just have like, no. I, I actually always had a healthy sense of self-preservation. Very, very thoughtful and. But that didn't keep me from a lifelong tendency to put myself in dangerous situations. And it was always the risque and the barely, you know, contemplatable that was intriguing to me. Yeah. Um, but you did finish up at UC Santa Cruz? I did. And then yeah. is that when you hit Oaxaca at that point? No, actually, I had already years, years prior. Oh, okay. But that turned out to be... Uh, the ideal school for me because they had such an extensive uh independent study and field study program and study abroad program right so it was hilarious i would fedex literally fedex my papers back to professors and bring back bottles of mezcal and drink with them and what what year are we talking instead of being reprimanded be applauded and then (laughs) head out in the next flight so is this the the 90s that's right yeah Yeah. so this is before it was cool way before it was cool (laughs) papers have cool. never been cool frankly and fedex has hardly ever been cool but mezcal is now kind of cool, yeah but it wasn't then yeah man. that's right that's right no so uh so you've been well entrenched in that culture and those spirits yeah i was time. it was very familiar to me and um yeah i mean absolutely but you know i didn't ever did anything in this business to be cool it was all very subsistence based mm-hmm. um my first wife was became pregnant with our first child in 94 he was uh, born in 95 so by 94 i had to get real serious real quick what stops being about you right that's right that's, that's right that's gonna be a huge that's shift right. that's right because for well, luckily, actually I, and also i mean just very pragmatically um i mean i don't know how personal to get on their type of interview but they there were family backgrounds that I made sure I didn't want to be raising my children behind bars. And some of the circles that I was traveling in, you know, had I, had I stayed young and exuberant and irresponsible, probably wouldn't have worked out quite, quite well. But you went a more erudite and more uh, intellectual approach to it. It seems like, because you didn't have, maybe it was a vehicle to travel and be immersed in culture going to UC I know it was looking back it was just remarkably pragmatic it was how to make a dollar out of 15 cents as I say you know I would go out to distilleries and buy mezcal in 50 liter jugs and break it down to 10 5 liter jugs even hustling and sell it for the longest time avenue back then Mexico had a heavyweight 20 peso coin Uh that reverberated on anyone's metallic you know garage door in Oaxaca so I would bang 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 and (laughs) the classic retort is (laughs) Quien eres? Quien es? I said, El Guero de Mezcal. I was known as the Guero de Mezcal, the white guy in Mezcal. <laughs> and you'd hear the Gordo te habla. Gordo. <laughs> Quien es? El, El Guero de Mezcal. Ah, encárgale cinco litros. You know, have him bring me cinco litros, five liters. Yeah. Una medida, as we call it in Oaxaca. So, boy, this was so far, so many years before. It was cool to be in Mezcal. Yeah. I was a, a peddler of Mezcal in my mom's <laughs> neighborhood. And but you then, still enjoyed it. Like, oh. what, appeal, what appealed to you then besides the, the financial? Oh, it positive, sounds so grotesque to say it, but it was the financial. No shit. Oh, yeah. It was sitting at the edge of my bed, Counting. looking at the pesos in my <laughs> hand and saying, this is viable. 
<laughs> I think I'll be able to feed my future kid with I'll, this. I'll run a corporation someday. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> How long were you peddling yeah, this? Yeah, no, then? I didn't come to this from any bartending or, you know, sommelier background yeah. or interesting. But it's business. even better because <laughs> you, you work when you understand the costs for things, you do appreciate them more. You, you really do. You know, and if you're I'm just, a firm believer, you do, if you it, don't, if you don't have any pain or any suffering, uh, you may be untested. That's right. What do you know? Like, mm. if you don't struggle or you don't go a little broke now yeah. and again, what is the little, what is the old adage? Necessity is the mother of invention. That's exactly right. You're yeah. backed into a corner. Yeah. What do you do? You but know? I could not have been luckier. I mean, what what was going on in Mexico at that time was that tequila was just beginning to be challenged with. Um, modern models of efficiency yeah. and foreign capital and tequileros were just beginning, or maybe they had already been, but as far as my awareness was, they were just beginning to be confronted with where is this going and what are relics of the past. And it was, in fact, uh, Jalisco tequileros that were in Mexico most interested in mezcal. Really? In Mexico City and Puebla and other places, you couldn't find a taker. But you could in Jalisco with tequileros who would remark to me, oh, well, this is the way my grandfather made tequila. And that's not something I fully internalized till recently when um, the director of the Mezcal Regulatory Council, Hipócrates Nolasco, sent us a, uh, the 1948 Norma for establishing tequila. Uh -huh. And what we read there is remarkably parallel to what we have in Mezcal today. No kidding. It's, so that it's extraordinary first, to look first at draft the, almost, right? the first Norma. And it's, it's just extraordinary to see that, um, you know, you weren't allowed to adjust proof. Right. Uh, you were to ferment with your fiber, agave fiber, all of these things that, we do in mezcal today yeah. in Oaxaca, and I say, wow, it's really true what these guys were telling me in the 90s, that this is the way their grandfathers made. You've got proof. You've got a document. Here's the proof. Yeah. And that's in the Diario Federal de la República, so that's the official publication from the governor, from the federal government. Wow. Um, so that was empowering, but that also just uh, completely unintentionally opened doors for me in Jalisco, and I, again, you know, better lucky than smart. Mm -hmm. I had the dumb luck to find somebody. Actually, that was through a San Francisco connection, an old um, philanthropic, old 160-year-old San Francisco company huh. called Haas Brothers, Haas. founded in yeah. 1851. Old Bavarian Jews from, from Germany who came along with Levi Strauss. No shit, same time. Exactly. And in fact, the Haases began selling Levi Strauss jeans to the mining camps no and way. ran Levi Strauss for the next 150 years. Holy so Bob shit, Haas crazy. stepped down you know, like eight years ago. How'd you get connected with them? Oh. I, you sold him some mezcal, didn't you? No, it, it was... <laughs> uh, I found one of their... Um, one of the... One of the descendants of that family is in the spirits game. Mm. And at some point, I had hit as many stores and restaurants as I could sell out of my trunk. 
And somebody <laughs> introduced to me the novel idea of selling through a distributor, and I had never contemplated that idea. And did, did it become like something that at that moment you're like, maybe this could be a thing? Like not just me? I, no, I'm not even sure I was convinced of that yet. Again, <laughs> yeah. it was very pragmatic. <laughs> I was always just kind of, what's the next step? Well, so then this brings up interesting questions. You're traveling a lot. You have your your son was pretty young at that point, right? Like, how often were you out of town? All the time. It's remarkable to when I look back uh, yeah. how absent I was in the beginning. But again, not to say it, you know, fifty thousand times in in this conversation, but it was prag- pragmatism and right. um, subsistence and. Sure. So what I what I did I had this you know bilingual skills and I had this quote unquote producer's perspective on some uh-huh. of the conundrums involved with agave spirits and I found some like soul, similar souls some like minded people who at least understood me or tolerated me in high school tolerating is probably the probably the the, yeah the operative <laughs> word there and I launched the tequila um, which tequila Espolón Espolón tequila wait 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 you launched Espolón I right when they were finishing the construction of the distillery, I picked up the rights to Espolón. Really, we created the first bottles, the design. Um, I began importing that along with my mezcal into California. Which mezcal was it at that time? Still the one that I work twenty two years later, Don Amado. And that's what we're sipping in it. That's what we're drinking here. Here's a good segue. Speaking of which, salud. brilliant salud, <laughs> Enrique, Jake, salud. Thank what you, is Mike. this? Is in espadine though yeah this is an espadine what's a this is copper clay this is clay clay pot uh in mezcal i became obsessed with clay pot distillation Mm. the um kind of cultural anthropology Mm -hmm. of distilling in clay was romantic and remarkable to me and um in my experience in well ultimately one of the ways that I convinced the University of California at Santa Cruz to give me a diploma was by bottles doing this while partially <laughs> bottles of mezcal. And then um, this study of 60 odd producers and points of differentiation. Oh. And so very unwittingly, I did that to graduate college, right? Again, That's what you did. Again, this, this, um, this, what I want to say motif of, better lucky than smart sure i did this study because it was regional ultimately like what what you could call a dissertation or a thesis yeah an undergraduate thesis so you published for for the sake of academia anyway you you no it was an undergraduate uh thesis but but you have it right yeah and one of the peculiar um coincidences or, or strokes of luck was one of the resources that i found in oaxaca was a professor a notable professor of a lot of repute in southern mexico really? alberto sanchez lopez who was a director at the time in southern mexico of the mexican national council of science and technology which was the Mexi- impre- it sounds impressive already he was an impressive guy he is an impressive guy yeah. not to speak of him in the past he's a remarkable composer of of songs an author a professor renaissance man a renaissance man just a very dynamic leader of community and um legions of students following him really a guy who's given his life and his soul Mm -hmm. 
to the community, to the heart of Oaxaca. And uh, he was impressed at my tenacity to roam the backcountry of Oaxaca and collect yeah. this data. So they ended up using that in the Mexican national. It's called CONACYT. Really? El Consejo Nacional de Ciencia y Tecnología. Did you think that at such an, a young age or such a lucky age, as you say, that you would be putting out something that... No, I was just one of many. I mean, there, I was one of many other students and protégés of Alberto Sanchez Lopez. Are you an amazingly humble guy? No, it was. It does not worth anything more than that, frankly. I mean, when I but look back on like it, I'm at that point shamed that we, by my writing and uh, the details that I forgot or didn't think to ask. But it's still like a monumental thing. I don't know. Maybe not. In <laughs> <laughs> but whatever it was, it gave me uh, exposure to. I, I love it. I've been just you know I've been dealing with Kanye for the past fucking <laughs> two weeks. Yeah. So the fact yeah. you're so I need humble. To love myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's All like, right. I can't get. I can't, guys. I can't get him to take credit for anything. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, my, my friends are critiquing my my current uh, interest <laughs> in Kanye, but <laughs> his last record wasn't so bad. I, you know, don't have a dog in that race. All yeah. I gotta say is that I don't. I get no yeah. comment. No yeah. comment. Jim. Anyway, but yeah. so this particular. I listen to Kanye or Ramon Ayala. And- See, Whatever that's different. comes up first. It's different. <laughs> I'm, I'm listening to all these Brit guys. These fucking Brit guys. But so you said Don Amada? Is that right? Amada? Don Amado, yeah. Amado, Amado Cisneros was, uh, rest in peace, he was an old producer, actually a poet, a composer himself no um, from the very back, back, back country. Um, in Oaxaca, though? In Oaxaca, a town called San Juan Hayacatlan in the region of La Canada, mm-hmm. which is to the north, uh, east of Oaxaca City. And he endured me patiently, pestering him for three years. You just asked how do question you, after question. Question after, after question. question. Right. And um, unfortunately, once he became old and frail, his descendants didn't have the same convictions about proper mezcal production. They yeah. didn't have the quite the same concepts of integrity and um not shortcutting but the other family that i was absolutely in love with always have been is the arianes family in santa catarina minas Mm. which is about 50 minutes to the southwest excuse me southeast of uh, oaxaca city Uh and i always well i guess through this this practice of learning all of these different distilleries became a little bit prejudiced about those mezcalerias that that lie along the pan-american highway okay. that were more efficiency oriented and a little less quaint and those that were in the valley of miohuatlan and ejutla and sola de vega uh-huh. uh, judah kepner makes an incredible mezcal vago yes and sola de vega i'm a big big fan one of yeah one of my favorites oh yeah uh, uh, hands down and um we are in that town, Santa Catarina oh, Minas. No so I had an opportunity to renovate an old distillery there, a 300-year-old operation with wow. that family. How big, how big was the property? What do you, like uh, just big fields? or was it- uh, Fields, two blocks in the middle of town in Santa Catarina Minas. And Germán Bonifacio Arreanes Broles and I um, formed a 50-50 partnership. And... Um, in order to renovate that distillery, I brought in another old friend of mine, 
gentleman named Jose Espinosa Moreno, and we went to task um, in 92 and then finished that renovation in 94, um, began up distilling for ourselves in 95, got all of our permits. And was, the, was the goal to eventually bring it in to San Francisco? Yeah, that's right. And I was selling, I was selling our little mezcal in California, yeah. and I brought in then Espolón. Uh-huh. That was a distillery that was founded in '98. Wow! And so I, mean, I brought you're the '95 f- with right the the Don Amado uh, predated the Espolón, and so all of a sudden I found myself with my own little um, piece boutique, boutique podunk mezcal and this unheard of tequila yeah and uh, i began selling that in the streets of california when i became impressed with in a state of at that point 38 million inhabitants 50 mm-hmm. percent latinos how the large uh, distributors bafflingly even- were not only unaware of mezcal they were unaware of really tequila beyond patron and maybe arrodura really they were completely Just not interested it was totally a- uninterested um to them the 50 percent of california that's latino yeah. was somehow irrelevant i was that offended is, by that preposterous and it's preposterous you would think if that their whole paradigm and their whole perspective is let's make some money 50 percent Give me a fucking break, right? Like, well, I found that vulnerability, and so again, in pragmatism, I convinced them that they ought to hire me to change the <laughs> dynamic, and I created. You've a been little... in politics, Jake. You ever? <laughs> <laughs> wow, I don't think I would be. be a good I think one you'd for be politics. better than you think you would. Be. Maybe so. I don't I think, think you. So. It's not a, not in the plans. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, before I knew it, I'm stumbling around California, running. Uh, the the hispanic or latin market division for this big distributor wow the distributor's still around uh yeah the distributor's still around it's a big one (laughs) (laughs) you're catching my laughter they are the (laughs) largest in the world and they just consolidated with bacardi if i recall right they just picked up bacardi and yeah i know i think uh, i've heard of those guys yeah (laughs) little family i think they care about actually they are a family company are they yeah, Southern Wine and Spirits. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. Owned by the Chaplains. Yeah. And a magnanimous, dynamic, incredible man at the helm, uh, Harvey Chaplin. What's well, good at old, least? Old Brooklyn Jew. Very, yeah. uh, very innovative, very strategic, heart of gold. Incredible. I, I, he's, he's developed this empire really through hard work and personality. Yeah. And, um, it's it's grown beyond his wildest dreams. I mean, things begin to take on a life of their own. They, as they do. But now Southern Wine and Spirits has just merged with Glazers. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I, I did that for 11 or so years. And then and so uh, you were running that division, basically. I was running that division. Did and you still, and so you had still uh, an actual, you said you're 50% partners in Don Amato, right? That's and, right. And then Epsilon. And the distillery, had, not really just Don Amado, the distillery that so makes whatever, Don Amado. Yeah, so, so we whatever make a, we make another labels well. came out. Right, right. What was, is the other one in the States as well? Uh, Mina Real, because our, that's, dis, that's our, dis, as well? 
Well, not to be confused with another brand called Real, Real Minero. Minero. No, Minero, it's a different label. Minero Real is ours. Our distillery for 300 years has been the Real de Minas distillery. We, ridiculously, we, that's the editorial, we, I never uh, trademarked the name. I never thought to trademark the name. But colloquially in Oaxaca, our mezcal was always sold as Real Minero. No the, the The real mezcal yeah. from Minas. Yeah. I never trademarked it, and um, another family trademarked it. They happen to be cousins of ours, um, okay. so I won't go in further. It wasn't into like that, acrimonious, but, was it? Um, tenuously. Let's see, okay, uh, that's tenuously. fair. So, but you got two labels. Yeah, you're a part owner in the distillery. You've got Epsilon. Which did you have equity? Epsilon. Epsilon. Well? No, no equity. That just kind of gave me street cred, I guess we could say in the in the industry. Sure, sure. And again, I was an anomaly, so I think I was. This isn't all my own doing. I mean, I'm a white guy. I'm a Jewish background from really? the Bay Area, so is your, your father right? Okay. And so um, I was comfortable for executives to work with. Sure. And are you Jewish? Yeah. <laughs> you now we can air out all the dirty laundry. <laughs> uh yeah <laughs> is that why you you were saying that we're both white guys because you you speak spanish like uh well like there's a lot of misnomers you know mexico city has a jewish population of around seventy thousand people no kidding yeah so yeah. it's a big big population yeah 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 so you get in so why'd you leave why'd you leave the kush gig i just really you know i was i was the the kid you know the son of communists in berkeley it was years of my young life i didn't know you're not supposed to wear a skirt and couldn't you know right. walk around with snot hanging down your face and who cared you know i just wasn't i never got in this to make money yeah it wasn't the point right. i didn't know what to do if i knocked off at three in the afternoon to go play golf right. uh, <laughs> and i won uh, a nice little victory with the tequila regulatory council really? to be able to do uh a program that I had I had dreamt of for years, and that was there's a rule in the Tequila Regulatory Council, presumably to protect the consumer, to prevent a, some distillery from making a product for export and for tourist centers, and then using another maybe substandard distillery for national production. Mm-hmm. So there's a rule that. Um, ensures all production under any particular brand come from one distillery Mm. and i started to feel that that was in fact promoting mediocrity because when we look at the nuanced terroir driven characteristics of different tequilas we see that lowland agave might be very low in brick sugars it's quite dry quite hot yeah minerally minerally and is gorgeous when barreled and you get a little bit of that contribution of caramel vanilla butterscotch from oak Mm -hmm. uh, really delightful but to release lowland blancos at those historic 22 percent brick sugars were just throat scaldingly hot while conversely in los altos de jalisco where you have higher brick sugars Mm. more robust citrusy fatter fuller agave flavors uh those are gorgeous as blancos but kind of abominations when you're barrel aging them and laying oak yeah. on that so i made this argument with the tequila regulatory council that this policy was in fact reinforcing mediocrity 
Is that so, how you phrased it? Uh, that's how I phrased it and yeah. didn't win. Uh, oh, shit. What'd they say to you? Uh, no. Jog, <laughs> jog, jog on. Finally, <laughs> interestingly, what won the argument was to make a familial argument that these different distilleries are like a family. And would you reject one offspring to favor another don't we need to bring wow. everybody together that's isn't a good that's a good argument. doesn't a family need to move forward harmoniously yeah um anyway the long and the short of it was i was the, i won the right to do this project which mm. would you call the project i didn't know what to call it because i really didn't want to do branded i was fatigued on brands at the time sure. so i wanted to do a project that really celebrated producers and didn't talk about brands yeah. um so i wanted to do an unbranded tequila which is very unrealistic how do you list that in a distributor's catalog the brand becomes unbranded so i thought the <laughs> most uh impartial way to talk about a distillery would be to refer to it just strictly by its legal alcohol license number, number which yeah. is a four-digit number in, uh -huh. in spanish it's called a gnome, a gnome yeah. meaning um the the registry number that the tequila regulatory council assigns to a distillery mm. when it's authorized to produce tequila under the norma oficial mexicana so right. the number is okay. called a gnome number so i began this 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 project where i could approach out of about 60 distilleries that i knew uh, maybe 50 distilleries i knew those that were most extraordinary in their particular expression sure. might be a Blanco here, a Reposado there, an Añejo somewhere else, and make an art out of understanding those gnomes. Mm -hmm. This is where we go way out on the tree limb here. But I like so trees. I, <laughs> <laughs> so he called it Arte Gnome. Arte Gnome. And then there it's Arte Gnome Selección, a ah. selection from so-and-so. Um, so it's basically you saying... I'm hand-picking it. I, I, unabashedly. This yeah. is my subjective opinion of... You're like a Van Winkle. You realize that, right? <laughs> <laughs> You'll never take More credit like for Rip it. Van Winkle. <laughs> um, but anyway, the long, the long and short of that story was that... I, I, I look at Enrique as a, as a fantastic example of how that program succeeded. Um, distillers who I will say, in my subjective opinion, genus, extraordinary distillers, yeah. realized they could do a one-off kind of best of the best for this. Sure, sure. And really get eccentric and really... Do what they want, have some creative liberties. At creative liberties. Yeah. I mean, the, the Reposado, the family decided to forego commercial yeast in favor of doing something that they long since given up on, which was scraping the pencas of the agave oh, to extract wow. wild field yeast yeah, yeah. dumped on those plants by trees that they had planted around the fields. Right. So you really got distillers saying, boy, even my national brand, I can't really beat my chest and call it myself and talk too much about what I do because yeah. this national market might not be receptive to it. A gives foreign them, market. It gives, it's almost like a breath of relief for them right because it's like okay now I yeah have a and i hadn't anticipated that but it became it's amazing that. it yeah. was really fun so with with the tequila regulatory council's acceptance of that program um in 
a completely separate channel, the Mexican Secretary of Rural Development and Agriculture Forestation and La Sagarpa Secretary de Agricultura Pesca Agricultura. They uh, gave us a grant to redevelop our Oaxacan distillery on a premise that we would employ X amount of um, rural workers to create economy in southern Mexico. That's amazing, yeah. And I got that grant, which was an extraordinary amount of money to build really the sustainable distillery of my dreams. Um, That's amazing. What, quarter, I, quarter of a mil, something like that? No, no, significantly more than that. Jesus, that's amazing. Yeah, it was really neat. I, I mean, that was a big program that I brought to them. I, well, but how do you feel about being the guy that's from the States, basically, right? Even though you've got some, some obviously, some, some ties to, to Mexico. But being the guy from the States that is tasked with improving the economy. Because if you put it simply, that's what you're doing. Oh, it's right? a blessing. You, it's you, a blessing. You really took, took, took that to heart and took... Oh, what a Pride blessing. Pride in that, right? What a blessing. Yeah. I mean, the opportunity to improve the economy, the well-being of people you love. Yeah. I mean, what an extraordinary opportunity. It's amazing. Absolutely. And that's where, that's the, one of the pieces I remember us first talking. About. Yeah, no, a phenomenal about opportunity. about rebuilding that. And- I mean, I, I was in Oaxaca a month ago, and we're having... Um, a typical meeting, the way that I have them with their personnel. No, yeah, I've seen in you a, smash your hands on the table in earlier, a circle. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't like <laughs> chairs. Uh, people, people sit down; they talk too long. <laughs> That's so right. we've all got to stand. Everybody's doing wall squats. And um, <laughs> you know, we we were all in tears within a few minutes. That twenty families are now living off of this, and um, twenty families is really significant. That's a lot, man. It's, it's really a lot. I mean, it's hard work to, to create subsistence for 20. And Abs- my props absolutely. to restaurateurs and bartenders sure. who do it all day long. But you, you did it. Do, do you at least take some pride in the fact that you did this? Now, maybe not alone. No, I really don't. Because as anyone with any sense of maturity knows, it, it's, it's absolutely not me. I mean, it's all teams. It's all teamwork. It's a collective effort. Right. And but you don't ever... So, so the, the thing is... At some point, your pedigree and your resume speaks for you, right? So giving jobs to people, creating brands, creating a lot of traction in the market for mezcal, for tequila, all of it. At some point, you have to say like... From your lips to God's ears. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. You don't have a PR person, do you? Because no, <laughs> no one's speaking the graces of you because you're just like, no, no, no. Just, oh, just it's not necessary. It. I mean, really, sure. you're, one is humbled when one works collectively with right. lots of others. The pride, the, the treasure is in the work itself. Like, that's how it is for me, right? Like the, yeah. you know, We don't have to talk about it. Got done. That's what makes me proud. And I'm not even sure that my conviction is necessarily the right way to go. I mean, one of the, the things that's really endeared, endeared me now I am, he's endeared to me. I don't know quite how to say that. I'm very impressed with the director of the Mezcal Regulatory Council, Hippocrates Nolasco, who's been making uh, repeatedly the point, as we say in Spanish, mezcal es un medio. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a means towards an end. Mezcal, tequila, in and of themselves, I don't think that they are the end. I don't think that they are the objective. Um, Economy improved living right the reduction 
of economic scarcity that would drive families to split, that would drive young men to risk their lives uh, crossing the deserts. Um, expo economic exploitation. I guess in some ways I hope to be my father's son that really... Fight for it. Fight for these, the these are These are tools that we have yeah. to improve lives, improve, improve economies. And if done responsibly, we can improve lives and economies without uh, damaging the ecology right. and tradition. And I think that's our big objective. Mm. The market is fickle. The, sure. the trends of consumers come and go. And so I, I don't want to say we're here to introduce the world to exotic species of wild agave or right. we're here to show the world the extraordinary refinement of extended age tequila i mean they're all pieces of a larger puzzle yeah on how to um protect the family and values and subsistence sure i think that's really what it's all about and that's not quite a romantic message because Why one not? wants Why to not? call well, there's a it's tendency a to message, say right? that it's... there's a tendency to say that the vehicle itself is the destination. Yeah, but that's maybe that's not the case. There's so many other ramifications to a bottle here. It's not the same with gin. It's not the same with bourbon, right? We don't see this. We're very insulated. We don't understand the economic and the communal effects of the spirits we drink because there's not a lot, right? Gin, right. fucking gin, man. Gin's you make it five days, okay? It's fine, right? It's some right. some neutral. You think about anything coming from the earth like that. Now, France maybe one of the only other areas in which I, I say it's kind of maybe a similar thing, right? Families, generations. Absolutely, right? absolutely. We, it's very inspirational. The story of how the big cognac houses respectfully work with the ODV producers. Absolutely. Um, we say in Spanish when something gives you such a tickle that you're, you know, you're, you have chills in your spine in yeah. a positive way. We say, me da cosquilla. How do you say boner in Spanish? <laughs> 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 Sorry, it's another way to express the same Yeah, thing. A know. little bit less articulate. It's not I quite as, as erotic, <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's sensational to look. It was very inspirational, sensational to see the respect that the big cognac houses have, yeah. Carvassier, Martel, Remy, uh, Hennessy, yeah. have in, in really recognizing their livelihood is dependent on 1,500, 4,500, 6,000 ODV families. Right. And the respectful interaction. Now, I'm not in the middle of that, so maybe it's not so but respectful, it's a, but, but it's a very, so. it's a huge parallel. One of the few. We hope it could be a right. huge parallel. Yeah. And, um, you know, not to, I, I think that the Mexican sentiment is communitarian and family yeah. and really actually devoted to quality and substance right. of character. And uh, I think that can be really reflected in contemplated and well-intentioned spirits because Absolutely. the world is enamored agave and agave spirits is really uh, we look at sometimes it's like a um, old testament mana you know agave grows in the worst worst conditions right you can go to the most godforsaken hillside 
sun beaten and wind swept and there's an agave that's going to grow that's going to produce an income for that family yeah. so it's magical it's yeah. mysterious it's so dynamic uh it, what a blessing in this life to have found um this industry and found the partners that i have and i mean i feel that the same way like being yeah the other side of it you know um being able to enrique like He's sitting here. Kind it's of fantastic. To, it's, it's an amazing yeah, experience. Yeah, I, I got to say here, I feel quite foolish saying all this with Enrique <laughs> for a second to my Well, uh, he's, he's like your handler. He's the guy like, he's going to wait. He's going to wag his finger at you like, ah, no, no, no. No, no, no. Well, so tell me about the what, you, what you're doing in, in the capacity in which I met you, which is Haas Brothers, right? Haas Brothers yeah. is a, um, like I said, 160-year-old, California company, six seventeenth company in California history. Wow. Um, over the years, ran Levi Strauss for 150 yeah, years. Yeah. Which I'll start Wells crazy. Fargo Bank. That's amazing. Um, his own professional sports teams, but a dynamically philanthropic, socially conscious, um, activist family. Yeah. Really, a really remarkable pedigree. Um, simultaneously absolutely powerful in yeah. california's history but also quite humble and also quite uh guided by uh mentality of service and contribution so what why why did you feel the need to join it seems like you guys have similar ethics similar i've been asked that a lot but really as we'd say in spanish you know simpatico souls they're simpatico, yeah uh, they're they're complimentary complimentary yeah. and um i've never intended to do things myself um why not you seem very capable i'm not sure that that's our purpose i, I mean i think i am capable i hope that i am but i think working collectively collaboratively yeah is a more noble pursuit and um i've worked with and for done different things for this this old family enterprise for 17 years and so uh, i i'm familiar with some of the spirits i do want to touch on that panamanian rum sure yeah so give me what it's a big collection of stuff from what i understand but there is some brilliant spirits in that portfolio that i imagine either you had some direct hand in or it's something that you're very passionate about so give me let's just say like what are the the three that are really on your mind i guess that's probably the the most honest analysis of my relationship with Haas brothers over the years has been it's been it's provided a bigger sandbox for me to play in yeah and um when I look at what we can do in agave spirits as being a means towards an end, not in an end in and of themselves, mm -hmm. I've thought of what are vehicles that can understand our mission and further our mission. Yeah. The family at Haas Brothers is exactly that. And they've afforded me really uh, the, the liberty to do whatever I really want and over the years, I've become intrigued, as one does, with different projects. Um, there's one commonality, I think, with everyone in this spirits and bartender and restaurateur and hospitality sector, which is... We're all failed of, musicians. Yeah, failed musicians, <laughs> failed actors. No, lots of irons and lots of fires. Yeah. Um, 
and it's been uh, it's been a really an enabling device for me to fulfill a lot of ambitions that I've had continue got lots of projects yeah and uh, we can't you know all rebuild Rome here there's no need if you can find someone that understands your ambition in life your goal and yeah. is willing to let you pursue that unencumbered and unhindered so there's no there's no end in sight for your abilities and well, leeway and your flexibility with as we office. say in Spanish el día que el señor me lleva so so Oh, tell the, me the the day that the day the Lord takes me is the end. Yeah. We don't know when that's going to be. <laughs> well, we can finish this rest of this Don Amato bottle, and we'll still I don't think fun. that'll do it. I don't think, you may go blind. I don't, I don't think, think it's going to end. That'll your life. even do it. That won't even do it. Well, man, well you, you asked about Panama. Yeah, um, like I, I, there's that. I, I tried one with John. It was I think a a, ten, a nine year, a ten year, a nine year, mm-hmm. nine year, which mm-hmm. is just mm-hmm. exceptional. Oh, I hear thank there's you. a twenty three year as well. That's right. Right. Which I've got to get a bottle of. Thank it. you. It's nice, tight, and dry. Thank you. I got to say that that whole endeavor has been much more selfish than altruistic. You just wanted to have a nice rum selection yeah, for yourself. Yeah, exactly. We do find ourselves in Mexico. Now, there's a misnomer in the uh, United States. People think that Mexico is predominantly a tequila drinking country. Uh, no, it's not. not at all. It's the brandy, number one right? spirit is rum. The number yeah. two spirit is brandy. Yeah. I think now the number three is a kind of a low end uh, tequila. Yeah. Uh, what we say a mixto. That's uh, a gold, you know, a aguardiente of caña mixed with with agave. Right. And frankly, it, I grew tired of being in circles with friends drinking vanilla additive laden, you know, concoctions. Right. Of candy rums and i actually have always been partial to the flavor of rum i like rum and um as i've done a couple of other times in my life i just couldn't find what i wanted so i began to uh, a pursuit of trying to create it and i wanted something that was congener rich dirty yeah sulfury a little bit but punchy and dry punchy tight very tight yeah, but I wouldn't say dry. Um, I usually do like dry spirits, but in fact, what I wanted was a little bit more gratifying experience, um, but with some depth yeah. and something, oh, yeah, yeah. some it's contemplation. Not- and um, I found that in a distiller that spent 30 years of his life distilling in Santiago, Cuba for Havana Club. Wow. And... Uh, emigrated first the Dominican Republic and began storing, asking for part of his wages in rum mm. and then needed a secure warehouse. And so he started storing rums in Panama and then later went to work for uh, a Central American conglomerate in the, the What's cane the, fields. the brand called? I named it Panama Pacific there because I'm born and raised in San Francisco and Bay Area and uh, there's a, a tremendous event in our local history. Of course, people have heard of the 1906 earthquake. Sure. Devastating to our economy and to our society, but actually kind of a catalyst for an entrepreneurial can-do spirit that was a continuation out of the gold rush era and a, a conviction that we can remake ourselves. We can be who we want to be. 
a lot of people moved to California and you know changed their names famously in right, Hollywood right. and that whole thing and kind of reinvent yourself. And San Francisco in the period from 1906 through the construction, coincidentally, of the Panama Canal, which finished in late uh, 1914, mm -hmm. was about rebuilding this majestic city of the West. Um, it's intriguing or interesting to note that the industrialists of the era spent $400 million and $1915 Jesus Christ. to put on this grand world exposition called the Panama Pacific Exposition. Really? Of 1915. And that was, we tend to forget now in the modern era. What well, I don't know meant. that we ever remembered if it was. No, but I'd say what, what it meant uh, for mankind right. Right, right, right. to link the Atlantic and the Pacific. And to create that passageway through Panama, what that meant in connectivity and enterprise commerce. and commerce, but yeah. community and exploration and bringing distant neighbors closer, closer. Right. And the whole progressive era was just, I think, magnificent. Um, Post-industrialization, um, before the cynicism that came with World War One, right. and, and kind of a, a stark, you know, abrupt awakening of global realities but when are you a you're you're a history guy aren't you i like history as you, <laughs> as you look yeah. you're gonna look at your nails like hey, you know, yeah i like history. Little, i like history like so history. so it was it was a, a no-brainer yeah. to name this rum that we launched in this last year 2015 to mark, mark the centennial of the Panama Pacific International Centennial. That's amazing, man. Yeah, yeah. So much more insight to it than I think anybody knows. <laughs> or anyone would care. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, <laughs> I won't, but I won't make any call. But spirits are personal. You know, how uh, is that, what uh, we do is personal. So this is personal is. to You're our story. Totally right. But and, um, how's that 23 here? Oh, it's exquisite. God damn. It's exquisite. I got, I'm, I'm making sure that John... As we say in Spanish, no hay pandero que habla mal de su pan. There's no baker that speaks ill of his bread. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it's unparalleled. Wow. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't even paid to say that. No, they're fun. Another project over the last couple of years I got really intrigued with was, uh, again, historically rooted. There was a, you know, Mexico won its independence from Spain in the early 1800s. and Well, the first third of the 1800s, I think it was 1834. And that whole bandito era that we, we see on black and white, you know, cowboy movies sure. when we're kids yeah, yeah. of the the massive mule trains and the bandidos and crazy eight, 19th century Mexico. Right. Um, Mexico was once again vulnerable um, to foreign forces. A lot of Americans don't know that the United States has actually militarily invaded Mexico seven times in Mexico's history. As if we couldn't get the message. But this time, uh, it, it touched to the, le, le tocaba a los franceses. And the, uh, the French invaded in 1882, I believe it was, and imposed a Austrian-born dictator named Maximilian, his, his wife, Charlotte, so Maximiliano y Carlota. Really? They were in Mexico for 20 years, but his reign only lasted something like four years. Uh, but what's interesting about 
the Mexican communitarian sentiment is they actually didn't persecute all of the French emigres that had moved from Europe to France. They just said at that point, hey, but you got to get in where you can fit in. Right, so right. the 50,000 or so Frenchmen that had moved to Mexico joined Mexican regular society. They lost their their royalty status. No but kidding. among them was this gentleman, Henri Vallée, who brought to Mexico formulas for distilling Fernet. Note, I don't say Fernet. Uh, it's not okay. Fernetto or Fernetti. It's not an it's Italian French, word. It would it's mean, a yeah. French word. Yeah. Fernet. No shit. As much as the Italians would like to deny that. And um, brought a couple of other recipes, uh, a bitter made from the bark of the Angostura tree. Uh Um, And somehow those recipes endured 130 years, totally neglected. Uh, The brands were always for sale in Mexico, but absolutely not popular. Kind of the cobwebbed old dusty bottle at the top shelf of a bar in the far corner. Um, but I was very intrigued with them and began importing those products. Yeah, I've had it. It's wonderful stuff. And then several years later, had the opportunity to actually buy those brands. Really? And so uh, you, do you own those brands? I own those brands. How as many well. brands do you own now? And the kids count. So you could count the kids. You own them. Well, I, I don't own that. I own maybe four brands, but I, I do partnerships with people. Yeah. And, um, I have a sense of uh, proprietorship over things that I don't own, which is probably a fool's mission. But <laughs> there's, there's, I've had great partners, and yeah. I've had opportunity to do some extraordinary things. So really, at the end of the day, um, you know, does the boss work for the workers, or do the workers work for the boss? Right. Uh, ownership is incidental. They're, they're, none of these are like lucrative ventures. Sure. They're. We all, do because you love it. If you didn't, I do really do love it. it, and we have, you know, well, so I, ulterior purposes. Um, and really, what one. we say in this business, <laughs> at some point, we all have the epiphany: the people we get to work with—that's it, man—are the reason to wake up in the morning and yeah. to live the day. And I, I mean, it's it's an amazing note, Enrique. It's great. Like you guys are here, I gotta get a picture because this is like a really wonderful yeah. experience for me. Jake, you coming in from California? You know, if ever I can learn just a little bit from you guys, that is an amazing thing. But to think like we all wake up in the morning and we're all peers, this is the best fucking team there is. Yeah, right. It's dynamic. No it's very empowering. It is, and it and it you never can be too down about it because we can always count on each other and we can always ask questions. You know, it's been. Uh, an amazing run here, but really great getting to know you. And thanks, I'm in San Francisco. Man. Thanks for this opportunity. Oh, it's my my pleasure. And Enrique, thank you for so much for sitting in and um, wonderful mezcal and a wonderful conversation, Jake. Thank so, you so much, Mike. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon, man. Thank Be you. Be well. Thanks, brother. Well, there we have it. What do you guys think of Jake? Now, Jake may seem serious. He's obviously just an amazingly intelligent with regard to the world and specifically mezcal tequila and agave spirits. But don't let that fool you. He is incredibly intelligent, but what may seem like a kind of pensive seriousness, he is very, very funny, hilarious, down-to-earth, compassionate, and warm. One might call him a sweetheart. So just a little insight after we concluded the interview that wonderful week, 
day evening. Enrique, Jake, and I were seeking out some food post-midnight on a weekday, and luckily Whataburger was right around the corner. So one of the fondest and great memories I've had with any of the guests is the three of us going to get some breakfast taquitos at Whataburger, talking tequila, talking people, and just walking around the neighborhood. It was a great night. Thank you, Jake, and thank you, Enrique. So thank you, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter what taquito combination is your favorite on the Whataburger late night menu or what kind of bass tracks you want to lay down next, please keep dancing.